The blessedness of this hour certainly is a great thing indeed that we've been permitted the measure of health, the other blessings in life such that on Sunday morning, in this case the fourth Sunday in January this year, we could assemble and meet in the way that we have already done. The blessing of these prayers and songs and even the fellowship, how great indeed it's been. We now come for the next few moments to an opportunity to reflect on a section of God's Word. I hope that with your Bible available and handy that you'll be able to appreciate along with me some powerful teachings that can help us draw closer to the God of heaven. You may notice on this opening slide, in many ways this lesson is a summary, a conclusion if you please, to a series of lessons that we've been dealing on Sunday evening with for the last three weeks. Starting on the first Sunday night in January, we began a series of lessons about personal finances, or at least financial lessons, from Solomon. And one by one, we have looked at the book of Proverbs primarily, and also Ecclesiastes, and we have found in that a whole host of wonderful apl applicable principles. This lesson, hopefully, will be the summary, the final lesson in that series. And you can see on that slide, it's going to develop like this. One of the things we've learned is that everything we have of a material nature belongs to God. In other words, He created it, and therefore by right of ownership it belongs to Him. Psalm 24 verse 1 still says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That means you and I, the physical matters touching our person, all of it ultimately belongs to Him. And we are expected by Him to be good stewards of it, to use it in a way that would glorify Him, to use it in a way that would be fitting in relation to that which He has instructed us. Therefore, as this slide closes, we're going to come today to money, specifically the collection. You and I know that in terms of the, wor the portions of worship, we think about prayers and we greatly admire the Lord's Supper, we reflect upon the nature of the Word of God, and we lovingly become excited about singing, but at least in the heart of some, it might be tempting to suppose that the contribution is to some extent less important. After all, perhaps 30 seconds, a minute, throw some money in a plate, and does God really look that carefully upon it? What is it the Word of God has to say about that? And so this morning, why don't we at least use that as our consideration by looking with some degree of consideration at personal finances of the collection. As we do that, let's close that slide like this. What are some practical applications that you and I might offer and put into our heart as it relates to this subject? First of all, a few principles based again on the Holy Word of God. And the first one is this. It's certainly fair to say that there are a number of responsibilities that come our way as human beings, dutifully living upon this earth. Look at three quick ones. First of all, you and I are told in the Bible it is appropriate to have an appreciation of one's self-worth. Look at it this way. A man has said you love your wife as you love yourself. Well, if you don't love yourself, doesn't that indicate you're probably not going to love your wife very much? And didn't Jesus on another occasion say, Love thy neighbor as thyself? 
Well, we often look very highly upon ourselves. We want to stay healthy. We want to be well. We want to provide for ourselves accordingly. That isn't wrong. But notice that's not the only obligation. What about this one? One's obligation to one's family, to one's wife, to one's husband, to one's children, even to the other members of the family. Aren't we reminded in 1 Timothy 5, 8, to that one who won't in fact provide for his own. And Paul was talking at that point about physical provision. He said he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. That person who won't dutifully provide in relation to the responsibilities according to his family. But even that is at all. What about the obligations to others? I mentioned it a moment ago, but perhaps it's time to reappreciate it. The love for God is supreme. But second to it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verses 37 and following. And so as you and I live upon earth, we have obligations to self, obligations to our family, obligations to others. As we seek to be dutiful and to carry all of those obligations out accordingly, we now come to priority number one. The Bible is very clear about this one. As much emphasis as is given to those other ones, this one is something that every one of us need to reconsider and rethink. And it's this. What is the top priority? What is objective number one? For any person who would wish to please God, any individual who would wish to so conduct his or her life in a way to please the God of heaven, God says, I must be priority number one. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it in these words in Matthew 6, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Do these things under consideration there are things like food and shelter and clothing? Jesus said, God's got to be first. Now that had to have been just as challenging for those people then as it certainly could be demanding of us. In the midst of a world that offers so much materialistically, and offer so much by way of entertainment, recreation, and otherwise, God says, I've got to be number one. If we, and if we love Him, we will thus work to making sure that that is the case. No wonder in light of that. Look at just a few of these additional verses. I called your attention to that Matthew chapter 6 passage. Look at this one in 1 Timothy 4.8. We're reminded there about the nature of godliness in comparison to other things. Bodily exercise, he said, profits little. But godliness is profitable unto all things. Now, he didn't say that bodily exercise is bad. Many in the health profession would say that certainly it has goodness about it. But he says still the top priority must be godliness. I would add one final one. That Matthew 27 passage. I saved it till last for this reason. You may recall that the Pharisees had been involved in a discussion and they sought one more opportunity to challenge, in fact, perhaps even unanswerably so, the Son of God. They thought they had Him pinned. The rabbis had debated for ages prior to that. Which of all the Old Testament commandments is the greatest one? 
Well, they thought they'd use that opportunity to challenge Jesus, for I'm sure they expected if He answered certain things, He would distance Himself from some of the rabbis and the schools thereof. And if He answered otherwise, He'd be distanced from the others. Jesus very point blank said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he went on to say all the others, in fact, revolve or at least hang upon it. To make application of that to your life and mine today is going to be our thrust, our focus, specifically in the realm of finances. Economic application. Let's close that slide like this. In Mark chapter 10, there was an occasion when the apostles found themselves on the other end of this discussion. And Peter said, Lord, we've left all to follow Thee. He rather seemingly asserted, Jesus, I've given up so much to be Your follower. I've given up so much acclaim and worldwide consideration. And Jesus was quick to say, No man that has even given up brothers or sisters or family or father or mother, anybody that's given up those things, and even more, will not be repaid greatly in this life and also have eternal life. I've often wondered how Peter recoiled from that statement. I'm sure he went away with a different viewpoint than what he came with. And today, in the midst of that which you and I have, Do our finances indicate that we love God more than anything else, more than anyone else? Does our financial records, be it our credit card usage and be it the other things touching the economics of our life, does it indicate that we indeed are putting our money where our mouth is? Let's turn that slide and go to the next one. Because after all, did you notice what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? Well, here on earth, that's the church. And so are we devoting our consideration to the matters touching the well-being of the church? The New Testament authorizes, it would seem, three kinds of categories for the work of the church. And one of them is evangelism. The primary mission of the church is to seek and save the lost by presenting the unchangeable message of Christ. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 28, "...going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned." As Mark's version presents it in that form, we all are aware of how Paul and the other New Testament characters were such powerful examples of evangelism. But there's also the work of edification where we're admonished to build one another up. That is a command of 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And there's also benevolence, in which we are commanded in Galatians 6 verse 10, to do good to all men, especially unto those of the household of faith. Let's make an observation. Every one of them takes money. To support a missionary requires funding to carry out the particular matters touching the other ways that evangelism is done, whether it be by internet, by television, by radio, whether it in in fact be other pamphlets or written literature. 
And edification requires money for, in fact, those tools that are often utilized in connection to make that a possibility. It requires funding. It certainly is true. Some of the things out of this are word of mouth and maybe are little cost, but otherwise, the work of God in general is going to require money. Let's close that slide then like this. The Word of God encourages all of us then to appreciate that as we invest our money in that regard, we have the blessed privilege of being called a fellow laborer with God. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3? And as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, this rather timely statement was made to them, and certainly by inspiration valuable for us. Let me start reading in verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. That money that you and I place in the plate, it allows us to appreciate that in so doing, we are working side by side with God. And that is a remarkable thought. To appreciate that as great as He is, as awesome as He is, and quite frankly, He could accomplish things without your help or mine, but He has so deemed it in His infinite wisdom that it's better for us to contribute to His cause. And we, in fact, can work side by side with Him. I would hope then that as we think about presenting funds into the collection plate, imagine it not as this arcane matter of merely money, but yet a thing whereby we actually can work together with God and that He can use to such great means and to such a great end. One final thing. We'd be remiss not to say this. In every instance of the Word of God, God always gives back more than we give to Him. Not a single exception to that. He always gives back. And didn't the Lord tell Peter that a moment ago? Look, no matter what you've given up in this life, I'll make sure your needs are met while you're here, but then I'll give you eternal life. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift in the words of 2 Corinthians 9.15. To say all of that perhaps is to take us back to Malachi chapter 3. In nearly the last chapter of the Old Testament, as often as the children of Israel had chosen the wrong path, as often as they had walked down bad pathways such as idolatry and otherwise, God commissioned the prophet Micah to make this interesting statement. Let me begin reading in verse number 8. Will a man rob God? One of Malachi's beautiful ways of presenting truth was to ask a question and then to turn right around and offer elaboration of it. Now, perhaps all of us would be quick to say, well, God is great. Nobody can rob Him. But look at what God said. Yet ye have robbed me. Now probably those of Malachi's day would have been quick to say, but look, God is so majestic and mighty. 
How could we ever rob him? And to hear God say, you have robbed me. Let's read on. Wherein have we robbed thee? They were quick to ask, God, if you say we've robbed you, could you tell us how we've done it? In tithes and offerings. That was God's answer. You have not given to me what you could have. You haven't given to me what you should have given me. And so the next verse reads, You are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. First of all, God said, you have robbed me because you haven't given me the tithe like you were supposed to, and you haven't given me the offerings like you were supposed to. But don't you realize this? If you would open and give me what you should, I will open the windows of heaven and give you more of a blessing than you'll be able to handle. Now that promise is still very vital and very much a part of even the presentation of the New Testament. What about then some practical applications of some of these things? You may notice that mention was just made of the tithe. We might do well to at least start the next portion of our study by recollecting what was this tithe that God said the people had failed to give Him in Malachi 3. Well, surely you and I are aware that that word literally meant a tenth. And on two separate occasions, God commanded the children of Israel, you make sure to direct the tithe to me. They were commanded, you see, that that was the amount that they were to direct to Him, but that wasn't all. There were additional sacrifices, and there were additional offerings, and there were additional demands. But at least at that point, one could say the tenth was easily what He highlighted. We perhaps would do well to notice... The law of Moses was at the first time in the Bible that that mention of the tithe was made. Even before the law of Moses, Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek in Genesis 14.20. It would seem the tithe was a basic appreciation and a part of human culture even before the law of Moses. The tenth. No wonder in that light. Why don't we now observe this? That old law of patriarchy and that old law of Moses have both since passed away. We now live under a better covenant. We live under a greater covenant. We live under a perfect covenant. And if that be so, and if they were commanded to give the tithe, the tenth, what might that indicate about the mindset that should be ours? The appreciation monetarily and financially that ought to be ours. No wonder some of these verses ought perhaps to come before us. They under the Old Testament in Acts 13.38, they could not enjoy forgiveness. All their life, all they could do was offer the requisite sacrifices with the understanding that there was coming at some point in the future the perfect one that would be that sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. In fact, even the consciences could never be made perfectly clean, Hebrews 10 verse 1. And yet you and I live beneath a covenant today for which we can have complete forgiveness, complete remission of sin, 
understanding and absolute rightness with God. That means our covenant today is so much the better. Not only that, look at 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. Brother Dennis read that a moment ago as the lesson text. We are presented that in fact it's not that we loved God first, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. We couldn't redeem ourselves. It was impossible. But yet God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent His Son to take my place. Shouldn't my money then and that which I give to the Lord be a reflection of the fact of what it's going to be worth me to go to heaven? The value and greatness will be attached to us to look forward to that eternal abode one day. Oh, how great the gospel is. No wonder on that slide, we'd be quick to say then, the collection is an individual matter. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, quickly point out to all of us how that we are admonished, in fact, demanded by God that we lay by in store on the first day of every single week as God has prospered us. How has God prospered you this past week? How has He prospered me? I'm sure as we think about others battling sicknesses and illnesses and sometimes grave oppressions, I'm sure we each can feel a great deal of thankfulness and very special blessing. But nonetheless, to appreciate how have I been prospered, and that should dictate what I'm going to put in this plate in a little bit later in the service this morning. To couple that idea with our overall attitude, doesn't it challenge us a bit? It is the desire of God that I don't give this grudgingly, hating to do it, but yet I give cheerfully, thankful that He has blessed me so and that I am able to contribute to His work because it is the greatest work on earth by far. That kind of attitude will redound greatly to verses as you can see there. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 8, there's a phrase that occurs and it's one that will occupy our attention at least for a moment. I speak not by commandment, Paul wrote, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. To prove the sincerity of your love. In other words, by what the Corinthians were contributing personally in light of what they had been prospered. That is going to be a testimony to the proof of your love. How much do you love God? Then your collection, your contribution will reflect the degree of that love it will reflect the degree to which you feel connected to the mission of God and the promises and rewards He has offered. That is in all. Look over to verse 24 of that same chapter. Wherefore show ye to them and before the church is the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. You see again, nobody else may have a clue what you and I contribute to the Lord, but the God of heaven is watching. We sometimes sing that song, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. He knows what you and I contribute, and He knows whether or not it's a proper reflection of how He's prospered us, and He knows whether or not it's a proper indication of our love to Him. Maybe it is fair then to close that slide and at least offer some observations.
those works of the church we mentioned earlier, evangelism, benevolence, edification, I wonder if it's possible there have been occasions and times in which evangelism was left undone because Christians chose to direct their monies to other places, such as personal recreation, personal entertainment. And it's not to say those things are wrong in their proper perspective, but if I could contribute and should do so, and I have chosen not to do that, is there a missionary that's not being supported that otherwise would be? Is there particular efforts, perhaps by way of GBN or otherwise, where other radio stations in other parts of the world could be brought under the Christian sway? And simply because of my choice, that has not happened. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? It really is a rather profound consideration. Let's get down to some actual numbers. If we just use this thought of a tenth, and we've already learned the gospel is greater, so you could argue one should really look at more than that, but consider this number. Suppose there's an individual. He's a single Christian. He has a job, but right now isn't making much. $15,000 a year, the only income he's got. If you follow at least the pattern of a tenth, that young man should be contributing at least $29 a week to the work of the church. I just took a calculator. Take 15000 find a tenth of it, and then divide that number by 52. That young man should be contributing at least $29 a week if he's going to at least follow the Old Testament pattern. And the New Testament pattern is even greater still. Try another case. What about a husband and wife blessed by God to have an income annually of $40,000? Now that's still isn't excessive in our day and time, but look at what the numbers reveal. They should be contributing at least $77 a week if they're merely going to follow the 10% rule. Now that might well mean other things would have to be set aside. I might not be able to afford a TV package I otherwise would. I might not be able to afford the other kinds of activities, a membership here or there, because my love to God is going to come first. Try another one. What if a husband and wife are blessed by God to have an income of $60,000 a year? They, following merely the 10%, rule should be contributing $116 a week at least. That's what those numbers would indicate. How are we doing at this? Let's try another one. What if a husband and wife were blessed by God in this day and time to have an annual income of $100,000 between them? Then following the 10% rule, they should be contributing $193 a week at least to the work of the Lord. How are we doing at this? Does my contribution indicate that I do love the Lord more than some of the other things to which I direct my monies? One last example I chose. What if a husband and wife were blessed to have an income of $150,000 a year annually? They should be contributing $289 at least per week on average. Now, those are just quick numbers. You and I could take our own personal income for our family and a calculator and quickly figure out what 10% would be. 
It's easy in our modern day, isn't it? If you go to a movie, at least if it's not a matinee, probably 15 to $20. And if you get any of the concessions that are there, it's a lot more. And we might easily have a cell phone bill tallying $200 a month. And we might have other kinds of obligations such as the utilities of our house, and we certainly recognize the need for these things. But am I contributing to God what He has at least expected of me? As you and I close that slide, there's one more column out to the far right, and we'll see what that is on the next slide. But for right now, let's make a few observations, not only about those numbers, but about your place and mine in an effort to be good stewards of what God has given us. It starts at the top of that slide. Don't you find it intriguing that on so many occasions, that which the New Testament, as well as the Old, describes concerning things, falls under the heading of a kind of sacrifice? In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And didn't David rather abruptly say, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. If I'm giving God the leftovers, I pay out all the things in my monthly obligations and bills that I want for myself, and I just give Him whatever happens to be left over, then may God help me, because that's not the right attitude. God's part needs to come off first. We need to make sure to dedicate our investment to Him first, and then if sacrifice is in order to take care of everything else, then so be it. That kind of appreciation seemingly is described in lots of cases like this. Philippians 4.18 highlights the sacrifice that Paul mentioned relative to the church at Philippi. They had sacrificed so that they could contribute to his cause, a missionary in a distant place. Do you and I ever willfully do without something so that we can put something in the plate? Do we make a willful decision to withhold certain things from myself or perhaps members in the family so that I can make sure to contribute in abundance for the benefit of God's service and cause? That's a good question, isn't it? Look at this other principle. What if you and I were simply to make a direction? You know, it's often the case that as monies come into to our life through our jobs and the other things, what if we just made an intent to give one more percent to God than what we have been? That is to say, just a blanket addition of one percent more than what we earlier have been giving. What would that mean? That was what that last column was. So that person making $15,000 to give one more percent each week would mean three more dollars. That family that, again, has an income of $40,000, one more percent would mean eight more dollars a week. Could I afford to do that in service to God? That family making $60,000, another 10% would be 11 more dollars every week. The last two. That family earning $100,000, another 1% would be 19 more dollars each, each Sunday, each week. Finally, Twenty-nine more dollars for that family blessed to earn $150,000 annually. What could be done 
with just one more percent. Well, I've asked you to notice, if you just take our numbers here at Pippin, if all of us gave one more percent, that would mean $300 more every week, $1,200 more every month. We could support two more missionaries. We could, in fact, well invest a number of things, perhaps in greater work for GBN or otherwise, whatever our elders would see to be the best decision. But the point is, look at how much more might be able to be done. And so as we draw near the close of our time this morning, I suppose we can ask some questions. I suppose it would be easy to then begin to think, if we were to dedicate those monies... If you never, in fact, see them, if you please, but they just go to God automatically, then one doesn't so much miss them. They're just a part of what you appreciate will be your consideration, your amount, your investment to be God's fellow laborer. This lesson today has just been an issue that the Word of God has presented to all of us. We know that it's our goal to serve the Lord appreciably and faithfully. Our elders would appreciate the opportunity to have some more monies that we can start doing some more things with it. May each of us then look with care and think about, are we being dutiful with respect to what God has given us? And if changes need to be made, may we have the courage to do it. If no changes are needing to be made, then may we thank God for His wisdom in telling us these things and our dutifulness to this point in it. One last thing as we close this slide and close this lesson will be that lesson text again drawn from 1 John chapter 4. When John wrote to those individuals and pointed out to them that God loved you first, so much so that He sent His Son that you might live through Him. Do you realize you and I would be lifeless and dead without Him? Spiritually, we would have no life. And we might be alive physically, but we'd be hopeless and without God. Oh, how much we owe Him. And may our finances be a testimony to that love and our willingness to serve Him as we should. This very day today, as we each examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, it may be that the matters of our life that have caused us concern, maybe they don't have anything to do with finances. There's a lot of struggles in life. We want you to know that if we could be of help, just prayers and strength would be our loving desire. But if there's some sin in your life and others know about it and you'd like to make it right, surely you would thrill at the thought of leaving this building knowing that you're headed to heaven again. Because after all, we know that sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, and it does so in such a way that the strength and blackness of sin is highlighted in the Word of God. This very day, if we could be of assistance to someone as a wayward child of God, please understand that God loves you, and He wants you faithfully back at His side, and if you'll confess and repent of those sins, He's promised to forgive them. But it might be that you've never become a Christian. That is to say, to this point in life, you've known what the Bible says, and you know that there was a man named Jesus hanging on a cross about 20 centuries ago for you. But to this point, you haven't done anything about it. Don't you realize life is passing you by, and the greatest of all realities 
to this point, you are ignoring. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. That's it. To fail in that means no matter what else might be said about your life or mine, we have been unsuccessful. And so Jesus said, you've got to believe in me. Please believe in Jesus with all your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name in the hearing of others. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. When you come up out of that watery grave of baptism, you're a new creature. You aren't just wet. You're a new man or woman. You have become a new individual with a different outlook, a different destiny, and a different set of goals and missions in life. Today, we could help you in your response to that gospel call of invitation. We'd love to do it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.